Gideon's International. We all see the fruit of their labor when we go to a hotel and see the Bible in the room. It's as far as Africa. I've been to hotels in the most odd places in Africa, and you see the Gideon's Bible there. So they're doing a good work, and we are blessed to have John come up. John, I'm not quite sure how to say your last name, Rotuno? Rotuno. And he's going to share with us about this ministry and how we can be involved. I'd like to ask you this evening how important it is to place a Bible in a hotel room. The Gideons place Bibles in hotels. Well, first of all, I'd like to tell you that every seven years, the Gideons take the old Bibles out, put the new Bibles in, and when we get those used Bibles, the majority of them are sentenced to a life sentence in prison. But the others don't make it because graffiti and all kinds of things that we have to throw those away. Well, I got a call from Jack Hibbs uh, many years ago saying, hey, don't throw those away. Okay, why? He said, well, we're building a new church and we want to put those old Bibles underneath our pulpit because we want our church to be built on the Word of God. But then there's sometimes that we go through these Bibles and we find that there's a testimony inside these Bibles. Let me just share with you a young lady contemplating suicide rented that room and she found a Gideon Bible. As she said, she turned to page 696 and she found that it said, a wise woman will build her house, but a foolish woman will tear it down. She decided to call her husband to tell, her, tell him that she was pregnant from another man. The husband said, come home, I forgive you. She wrote in the bottom, she said, this book is truly blessed. You know, we get many, many stories of people who go in with divorce problems and you know, just things in their life where they want to end their life. And this is what we encourage the hotels to take these Bibles. And if you go to a hotel and they say, we don't have Bibles here, well, you can say, I'm renting the room. Please provide a Gideon Bible because if you don't say Gideon, there might be some other kinds that get in there. So we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your church that have supported us for so many years. But you might say, who are the Gideons and what, are the, what is their purpose? Well, you see, the Gideons are Christian businessmen and professional men with their only purpose of winning men, women, boys, and girls to Jesus Christ. We do this two ways. The first is through personal witnessing, not placing Bibles. The second is placing the holy word of God in the traffic lanes of national life. You see, we put Bibles in hotels, which is the smallest area that we place Bibles, less than 8%. But we also go to schools from junior high, grammar school, I mean, sorry, fifth grade and up to the college level. You see, that's the majority of the Bibles that we give. Eighty percent of the scriptures that are placed are going into the hands of young people. Then we also go to the military. We go to the hospitals. And we do this because we want to see people come to know Christ. Well, we thank you. And we ask you, if you're interested... In providing Bibles for the Gideons, you can see us at the table outside. 
If you want to find out more how you can witness to people, then please see us. We have many different ways that you can share Christ by being part of the Gideons or becoming a friend of the Gideons, and we thank you so much. And God bless your church. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I know that um, there's a table out, out there. I know there's a, a number of volunteers that would love to speak with you. So I encourage you to take the time to talk to them and um, be involved in, somehow, in it somehow. Uh, let's see, what news do I have? The Israel team did make it back safely. And uh, it was a blessed trip. I had the privilege of just being in contact with Pastor Fred from Uganda and his wife, Alice, and it was his first time to go to Israel. And so it was just so much fun getting his texts and just his exhilaration of being in the Holy Land. And um, I talked to him this morning. He's back at the church in Uganda, looking forward to sharing with the church there. So anyway, that was a, an opportunity made available to him by the church here, and we're, we're very grateful to the church, to Pastor Rob, for making that happen. Um, so it's my pleasure to share with you this evening. Um, when I was informed of my assignment to teach tonight, I was looking through the relevant passages from our anchored reading. Um, I saw Leviticus there, and last time I was with you I shared Job, and I was a little too similar to Leviticus, so I uh, didn't do that. I saw the Song of Solomon, chapter 3 and 4. And I thought, I could tackle the issue of uh, this love between Solomon and one of his wives. I'm not sure which one, but <laughs> I thought, you know what, Pastor Rob or Pastor Rick will do a much better job with that than me. <laughs> so I'm going to go into the book of Luke, chapter 22, 23, 24. Actually, most of my passage will be from Luke, chapter 23. And it's on the topic of the cross. It's a topic that is definitely near and dear to my heart. And it's going to sound a little bit like an Easter message, I'm sure, but we're not that far from Easter, and as Christians, we, we say that every day is Easter, right? So we're going we're gonna to have a, an Easter message again. We're going to talk about the cross and I realized today something interesting. It's Earth Day. I don't know how many of you celebrate Earth Day or have in your past. But I have kind of a crazy Earth Day story that happened exactly, exactly 23 years ago today. It was uh, April 22nd of 2000. It was a Saturday. We were in San Jose. Pastor Rob at the time was in San Jose. We were all there serving underneath um, Pastor Don, and uh, that weekend, Rob had kicked off a ministry that it was a youth ministry that he called God Speak, and this was the first kind of youth rally where youth from all across Northern California were coming, and there was a lot of bands, Switchfoot, and a whole bunch of other people that I can't remember, but it was a, it was a big event at our church. There must have been a thousand young people there. And it was kind of the kickoff for what Rob would call Godspeak, which is where this church would eventually get its name from. 
But the following day was Saturday, and I was uh, just a new pastor there at the time serving with Rob. And in one of my previous lives, I was a manager of a landscape construction company and a tree company. And as an arborist, um, and because I was an arborist, I was asked to speak at this Arbor Day, Earth Day event sponsored by the city of San Jose at some park in San Jose. And I thought, oh, no big deal. I, I, can, I can give a few words on the benefits of trees and, and what they do for our planet, no problem. So I remember that morning, I'd gone over to the church and seen this huge Godspeak event kick off at the church. And then I run over with my family to this park and um, step into this Earth Day celebration. And it didn't take me very long to realize that I don't think I really wanted to be there. <laughs> I was a little naive. But they kind of gathered all of us, and, and you know the kind of people that celebrate Earth Day. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so they started this ceremony, and uh, they had four people celebrating the four aspects of Earth Day, earth, wind, fire, and trees. And um, the first person to speak was um, a priestess from the Episcopal Church, and uh, she was praying to Mother Earth to forgive us as human beings for what we had done to the planet. The next person to speak was a Native American shaman, and he was praying to the god of the wind. Um, the next one was a mystic, and he was doing something about fire. These were the four things. I just remember feeling like I wanted to just melt, right? <laughs> like, I'm not in the right place. I don't know what, I, what I'm doing here. But then it became my turn. And I was supposed to stand up in front of this gathering of maybe 500 people and talk about trees. And I was prepared to talk about trees, but I, when I realized what this was all about, I was like, what am I going to do? Anyway, the Lord inspired me. And so I started talking about um, the benefits of trees, which was a topic I was very comfortable with. And then I started talking about the biblical mention of trees, which I knew, you know, trees of righteousness, Solomon's words on trees. But then it all kind of culminated with an inspiration that the Holy Spirit gave me about a tree that we could celebrate, and that was the cross. And being as it was... The Saturday after Good Friday, I, I told this gathering of people, I said, but you know what, you guys? There is a tree that we truly can celebrate, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ that he died upon nearly 2,000 years ago. And I went into a, a short gospel message, and my audience looked at me dumbfounded. <laughs> it was completely silent. And when I ended, it just, it's like I'd put, a damper on everything, and um, one person came up to me afterwards and thanked me for what I said. It was the Catholic priest. <laughs> Needless to say, I was never invited back again. <laughs> Truly, there is a tree that we can celebrate. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to read the words to a hymn. 
at least part of the words. I was, I was rereading all the words. They all deserve to be read. But it's one of my favorite hymns, and it's one I'm sure you know. It's, it's the hymn called The Old Rugged Cross. And it says, I wish I could sing it, but you'd leave if I did. <laughs> On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. On that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction to me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross that Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I will share. And then the refrain says, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. You know, the cross and the message of the cross is certainly something, a life, that we don't hear a lot about these days, do we? But it's certainly a central theme. It's a central theme to the Easter message, and it's a central theme to our faith in Jesus Christ. In the run-up to Easter, Pastor Rick shared a message that he titled Easter with Abraham. And it was, a, it was an awesome message. I went and looked. It's online. I encourage you to read it because, I mean, I'd heard parts of the message before, but he put it together in such a beautiful way. It's worth listening to. But I want to piggyback on that message as we segue into the message I want to share with you tonight from the book of Luke chapter 23. And I'm titling my message, The Message from the Cross. If you have your Bible, do we have anyone handing out Bibles today? If you need a Bible, um, you'll have to suffer because there's no one. <laughs> you did it already. Okay. So Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 28, it says, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him... They laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And after a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. Verse 32, there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the other hand on the left. And Lord Jesus, as we come to you this evening, I'm, I'm blessed just that for everyone that has come, fellowship, your word, prayer are important enough to take time on a Saturday night to come and, and be a part of. And I just thank you 
for my brethren. I do pray for us. I pray for each person here. Lord, they're here for a purpose. They're not here to be entertained. They're here to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will minister to each heart according to their need. And Holy Spirit, you know that need. So bless our time in your word. Holy Spirit, teach us. Convict us. Encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here for Pastor Rick's sermon, I'm just going to recap it. But he tells the story of a mountain. Okay, and so where do I point this? I point it back there. Wrong way. Right there. Okay. And those of you who are here remember how in Genesis chapter 3.15, just after the curse that came upon mankind with sin, there came that blessing, that promise of the Messiah that was some 4,000 years before Christ. About 2,000 years later, we have in Genesis chapter 22 the story of Abraham and Isaac and how God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom he loved, to take him to the place that he would show him to a mountain and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering upon that mountain. And Pastor Rick laid out for us all the, the wonderful um, truths and implications of what that meant for both Abraham and for Isaac. But nonetheless, Abraham did go, and he went to that mountain called Moriah. And he, he actually took the command, he was obedient to the command to the point where he was about to plunge the knife into his son's um, body, and God intervened and provided for himself a sacrifice. But we see that, and we know that, as a type or a picture of what God would do 2,000 years later in Christ. But that was on that mountain, Moriah. About 2,000, sorry, about 1,000 years later, after this event, um, David committed a sin, a sin of lack of faith, a sin of trusting in his armies, and God brought a plague. And in the midst of the plague, David cries out, and he's prompted, he cries out to the Lord, and he's prompted to buy a threshing floor. And this is given in, in 2 Samuel 24. And on that threshing floor, which was on Mount Moriah, he offered a sacrifice. And the plague was assuaged. It stopped. In the book of Numbers, chapter 21, the children of Israel are in the desert. And like the children of Israel did, they would quickly forget the things and the blessings that God had brought upon them and for them. And they were complaining. And I don't have time to go back into Numbers 21, but God became angry and he sent serpents among them. And the Bible records that the serpents were fiery serpents and they were biting the people and many people were dying. And so in the midst of this, the people cry out to Moses and they say, Moses, we've sinned, help us. And so Moses intercedes, God tells Moses, um, construct a bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole. And whoever looks at the serpent on the pole will be saved. 
Fast forward a thousand years again to Jesus himself. Jesus began his ministry in the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, reading this passage from Isaiah. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Those words written by Isaiah in 720 BC, Jesus would read them as a fulfillment of the ministry that he himself would accomplish. And Jesus' mission in life was, in fact, to die. John 3 records that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then a part of that verse that we often don't quote, for God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus died a tragic death. I'm getting old behind here. On the very same mountain, and this is what makes the Bible just such an amazing book, because we learn that on the very same mountain that Abraham offered his son Isaac and that God provided his sacrifice on the same mountain that David bought as a threshing floor to, for, to offer a sacrifice to stop the plague that was bringing death to the Israelites, on the same mountain that Solomon would later build the temple, on that mountain, Jesus was condemned to death. And up that mountain, Jesus would carry his cross it was a method of death devised by Romans, and it was thought to be the most cruel torture by which you would kill anyone. And on that mountain, Jesus willingly laid himself on those pieces of wood, and he allowed himself to be nailed and, and, um, and killed on that in instrument of torture. The cross, which is what we're talking about tonight, is not like modern methods of execution. It's not like hanging or electrocution or injection or firing squad. It's those things mercifully happen quickly. Death on a cross is a drawn out torture. It's a humiliation. It's it's one in which your life slowly ebbs from your body. And it can take hours and even days. But Jesus wasn't silent on the cross. In those hours that Jesus was on the cross alive, the Bible records seven statements that Jesus made from the cross. And they're recorded for us in Luke chapter 3, in the book of John, and in the book of Matthew. And that one is actually repeated in the book of Mark. 
And these are the last statements of Jesus before he died. Seven passages, seven statements. And we know that seven in the Bible is significant. It's the number of perfection, the number of completion. And I wanted to take tonight just to look at those seven words. Certainly it's part of the Easter story, but what Jesus said from the cross has implications for us each and every day. And in those words, coming down from a suffering and dying man on the cross, we come to understand the perfect work that Jesus accomplished, that Jesus completed for us and what he offers us today. So we're just looking at the message of the cross, the message that came from the cross, the message that came from Jesus as he was dying. And the first one is given to us there in the book of Luke, just where we left off. It tells us that as he was being crucified, there were other criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. The first message from the cross was a message of forgiveness. Offering of forgiveness. You know, I don't suppose, as I was thinking about this, I don't suppose that there is a more sinful, so to speak, more atrocious more unforgivable thing to do than to actually kill the Son of God. But that's exactly what the people were doing to Jesus. In fact, it wasn't just any people. It was his chosen people. The very people that he came to save were putting him to death. And if anyone had the right to be angry or bitter... If anyone had the right to say, I've had enough, these people are boneheads, I've done everything I can. If anyone had that right, it was Jesus. But those were not his words, his first words from the cross. As he looked on the very people who were killing him, was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Such was the love that Christ had for them. Such is the love that Christ has for us. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than what? Than that he lay down his life for his friend. And Paul would expand on that in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, when he says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone will die. But God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His first words from the cross were, forgive them. The cross was the greatest picture 
is the greatest picture of God's love for us. Because he was doing it while we were yet sinners, before we had done anything deserving of his favor. When we were in our mire, in our sin, in our ugliness, he died for us. Whenever I do marriage counseling, I always point this out to the men. Because this is the verse, this is the love that God calls us as men to have for our wives. Husbands, love your wives as you feel like it? No. As it feels right? No. When you want to? No. As Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? When we were still in our ugliness, when we were still in our mire, in our filth, when we, before we had done anything right, he loved us. He died for us. Truly, it's, it's convicting because there is no excuse. Think about that verse. There is no excuse why we as husbands should not be loving our wives. Amen? There's no out. <laughs> because Christ is the standard. But you might be here tonight. And maybe the condemnation of your past just comes back on you like a flood. And you're wondering, can, can God forgive me? Can God forgive me of what I've done to that person or to my spouse or to you name it, whatever is in your mind? What does Christ offer? What's the first message of the cross to you today? He offers forgiveness for even the most atrocious sin. For even the most unforgivable sin. If you can find yourself, if you can find in your heart to be humble and repent, God will find it in his heart to forgive you. Amen? If you can find it in your heart to be humble and to repent of your sin, of whatever it is that you've done wrong, God will find it in his heart to forgive you. The only unforgivable sin is the sin of hardness of heart. The sin where we no longer think we need God. We're rebelling against God. God, the first message of the cross is the offer of forgiveness. The second word from the cross is given to us in the book of John, chapter 19. I'll begin in verse 25. Sorry, I'm ahead of myself. 1928. He says there, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that day the disciple took her down to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, and that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. 
I'm going to step into that second message, I thirst. Because that too is significant. Jesus felt what it was to be in a human body. Jesus felt the weakness of his human body. He felt the desires. He felt the constraints. He felt the passions of the human body. And again, that's important because there are many, and there are many, that claim that Jesus was something other than a human being. He was a spirit. Or that because he was the Son of God, he didn't feel pain or weakness or frailty or lack of strength. He didn't feel the things that we feel as humans. But that's not true. These very words tell us the pain that he was feeling on the cross. They tell us what his body was crying out for. And in these words, he shows us the weakness and the frailty of his own human, human body. It shows us that he truly did suffer. And he felt pain as you and I feel pain. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But in every way that we are tempted, he also was tempted, as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he overcame sin in the power of the Spirit. And so the verse in Hebrews says, So let us come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Again, thinking of this message that Jesus is sending from the cross. And what's he offering here? What's he telling us? He's offering us the knowledge that, every, that in every way that we suffer, in every way that we experience pain, anguish, sorrow, Jesus also experienced that. He suffered. The Bible is replete with references to his suffering. Read Isaiah 53, an incredible prophetic scripture on what Jesus would endure as he went through the cross. But you might be here tonight, again, making this practical for us, and you might be having this in your heart, and you think, God's too busy, or God can't relate to what I'm going through. And I would just say to you, brother or sister, take Hebrews 4.15 as truth. And understand that even if there's no human being that you can go to that will understand you, Jesus Christ will. And it was one of the messages that he spoke to us from the cross. He offers you the knowledge that in every way that we suffer, he suffered. He understands. Back up a few verses to verses, verse 25. We see there that Jesus was crucified. And his mother was there. It says his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene, these three women. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, 
Behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Now the reference there, the disciple whom Jesus loved is always a reference to John himself, the author of the book. But it's interesting to me that here he is on the cross in incredible pain. And who is he concerned for? (laughs) He wasn't concerned for himself. He wasn't thinking about himself. At that moment in time, he was thinking about his mother. And he was reaching out to her from the place where he really couldn't do anything, where his glory was taken away, where he was full in the glare of shame. And he ministers to his mother. And he says, woman, behold your son. In other words, he's, he's telling John, I want, John, I want you to take my mother to be your mother. And mom, I want, to take, I want you to take John to be your son. He's putting back together what had been taken apart. His concern was for others. The great compassion that Jesus has. The care for our suffering. And again, not only does he understand our suffering, but he's, he cares about it. You know, I think of the passages in Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have a God in Jesus Christ who not only understands, but he tells us that he cares for us. It says, cast your cares upon me because what? I care for you. I don't know what burdens you're carrying with, with you tonight in your mind or in your heart. Certainly we all carry some. But Jesus is offering us. It's, it's one of the messages from the cross that he understands. And he's telling us, I care for you. Roll your burdens onto me. I'll take care of them. The fourth word from the cross is given to us in the book of Luke. So turn back. Luke chapter 23, where we were. And we read about the the thieves, and there was conversation. I remember a message Pastor Rob gave, and he was talking about the repentant thief. Verse 39 of Luke 23. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
recall Pastor Rob's sermon. Here was a man who had not done anything right in his, in his life. Nothing deserving of forgiveness. He was there rightly judged. And he was deserving of that penalty of death. And what did he do? He simply called out to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, remember me. There was no class that he had to take. There was no baptism he had to undergo. He just simply had to ask in faith. And Jesus' response was, Today, assuredly, today you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing assurance of the hope that we have. And that's the fourth word from the cross. It's, it's the assurance of hope. The assurance of eternal life. We certainly live in a, in a world that is, is bleak. There's not a lot of good news. And we try to latch on to something that gives us a, a high, but it doesn't last very long. But I'm so thankful that we have God's word. Because it's the truths that we have in here that give us hope, isn't it? And giving hope to this man at the very last hour, at the very last moment of his life. What an amazing miracle. Again, I can't speak for everyone that's in this room. But there's a good chance that you've walked in here this evening and you don't have that hope. You feel unforgivable and you feel unsavable. And you're wondering, how can I have that hope? How can I experience the salvation that this man was offered by Christ upon the cross? And I want you to notice something, that this man did nothing aside from just cry out to Christ and say, remember me. It was a cry of faith. And it's by faith that God responds. By faith that we, are, that we receive the righteousness of Christ in us. And so I would say this is one of the, most, the simplest salvations recorded in Scripture. Jesus, remember me. And again, if that's you tonight, I encourage you to just cry out to Jesus in the same way. From the pain and the desolation in your own heart, cry out to the Lord who can save you, who wants to give you hope, who doesn't want you to leave here in that same state. Continuing on, Matthew chapter 27 records the words of Jesus as he asks the Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? If you turn to Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, Matthew and Mark record Jesus crying out to the Father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, as when Jesus was in the garden, it says that he was praying. And he was asking God three times. He asked God, God, Father, if there's any way that this cup can be taken away from me, let it be. 
If there's another way to accomplish salvation, let it be. But not my will, your will be done. And I think as Jesus was looking towards the cross, I'm sure that he saw the pain, the suffering, the eventual death. But I think the thing that was going to be most painful for Jesus, who lived in perfect unity with the Father, was this moment when the Father would turn his gaze away from his Son, when the sin of the world was put upon Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I know where most of us are well-versed in this theology. But someone had to pay the penalty for sin, and it couldn't have been us because we're sinners. It had to be a sinless person. And so Jesus, God, sent his son, and Jesus submitted to the Father and came. And he became that person that died in our place. And Jesus took upon himself the, ju- the sin, and God judged his son in place of us. And I think that this was probably the most painful moment for Jesus himself when that fellowship with his father was broken because he had taken upon himself the the sin of the world. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When you think about this whole method of salvation, it's a pretty amazing thing. Not only is it, it makes sense, God doesn't make any shortcuts in the process. God is true to who he is. He is both just and he is the justifier, the Bible says. And he shows his holiness and his righteousness in his hatred of sin, but he shows his love in how he dealt with sin. Instead of having us deal with it, he he put his son in that place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was the message that comes to us in that statement? It's the knowledge that Jesus was forsaken so that you and I never need to be forsaken. We were destined for an eternity apart from God. Eternal separation from God. There's all kinds of horrible descriptions of what that, would look, what that will look like. But the fact that Jesus was forsaken of the Father makes it so that you and I don't have to be. We simply have to accept what Jesus did in faith as the means of our salvation. The second to last message there is Jesus putting himself into the Father's hands. Back to Luke chapter 23. Verse 48. Now it was about the, sorry, verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he says, Father, into your hands... 
I commit my spirit. Already he felt forsaken. And now he was simply trusting in the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What's Jesus saying? He's showing us the example of faith and trust in the Almighty God regarding our future. At that point in time, Jesus' spirit was in the hand of the Father. And he was trusting the Father to accomplish his will. And his example is an example to us. We want to take so badly, we want to take things into our own hands. We don't want to trust the simple word that he gives us here in Scripture. We want to do it our way. But like Job, who didn't understand everything that was happening to him, everything that God allowed in his life, but though he questioned God, he still trusted God. And that's what the message to us from the cross is. Jesus trusted the Father. And he's telling us to trust the Father as well. Amen? The last message from the cross, again back in John chapter 19, are the words, it is finished. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. To Telestai, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What was finished? The redemptive work that began way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When Jesus saw, I mean when God saw sin and he cursed it. But he immediately began that redemption plan which would wind for 4,000 years in various pictures and prophecies and, and types throughout the whole Old Testament until in an amazing way it's all fulfilled in this one man, Jesus Christ. And what Satan couldn't foresee, what no man could see, what the Jews did not see, Jesus finished. He finished the work of bringing mankind back to himself. He finished the work of giving us that opportunity to be right with God again. It is finished. And what's he saying to us tonight? He's saying that once we have received that work in our own lives, it's done. There's no continued work that needs to be done. The work is done. Everything from there on out is simply a response to the wonderful love that he has bestowed upon us us it's finished and we can rest in that we don't need to worry what a wonderful message and why did he do this for us well Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 it says looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. It's been said many times, but why did Jesus do it? He did it because we were his joy. 
It was his love for us. It was the prospect of spending eternity with us, with his creation, that kept him on the cross. At any moment in time, he could have come off that cross, but he didn't. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he restrained himself for the love. Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us. Christ, for the love of us, compelled himself to go through the shame and the horror and the pain of the cross. We were his joy. You were his joy. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you. Praise the Lord. And what does he ask of us? What does he ask of us? Well, in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Somehow it's through the cross. Christ's cross and our cross. Christ's cross that he accomplished salvation. Our cross that he asks us to take up. That he says if we want to come after him, we need to take something out of our hands and we need to put something new into our hands. We need to take the self and the selfishness and the greed, and the pride, and all the things, the ugly things that are of our, our flesh nature. He says we need to deny ourself. We need to put that aside. And we need to put something else in our hands, and that is the cross, our cross. And we need to follow, not forge our own way. We need to follow in the path that Jesus walked. In other words, Jesus' death was an example, but his life was also an example. And, and Jesus wants to, us to follow in his footsteps in how he lived his life. And what is the cross? In a simple definition, the cross is to live a life of love, as the Bible defines it. Because loving... As every husband knows here, loving as Christ loved the church requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice. And so taking up our cross has, is this idea of loving as Christ has called us to love in the true sense of the word, not in the modern woke way of the, that the world tells us to love, but in the true sense of the word, to love as Christ loved is our cross because it's something we can't do on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to do it and to persevere in it. I want to just close by reading the last stanza of another favorite hymn about the cross. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt 
on all my pride. And this is that last verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what Jesus asks of us. He asks us to take up the cross and to follow him. Lord Jesus, thank you for these powerful messages that you spoke from the cross. You weren't silent on the cross. You weren't angry on the cross. You weren't vindictive. You weren't justifying. Lord, you were giving us a powerful message. You offered forgiveness. You showed us your humanness. You showed us your compassion. You offered us hope. You were forsaken so that we would never need to be forsaken. You showed us how to trust completely ourselves into the hands of the Father. And you told us unequivocally that the work is done. There's nothing else that we need to do. Lord, what a tremendous message. The message from the cross. And Lord, I know it encourages me. I pray that it encourages each person here. But Lord, I pray especially for that brother or sister who's come in here who's under condemnation, who's got that bondage from the past and the devil is just using it to, to beat them over the head, to cast doubts, to... Make them doubt your love for them. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't take my word, but as they listen to these red-letter words, these words from you as you were on the cross, Lord, I pray that by faith they, was, they would take them as truth in their own lives and receive that forgiveness. Receive that encouragement. Receive that hope. Receive that knowledge that it is finished and that they never need to be forsaken again. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, whatever ministry you want to do in our hearts, minds, lives tonight, we pray that you will do it. Lord, and as we close our session, Lord, I pray that we would just respond to you. However you have spoken to us, Lord, may we respond in obedience.